Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Invitations to Innovation, we are joined by Sharif Molabokas, who shares his thoughts about how to reimagine structures as a way to foster creativity and change. Welcome, welcome to the Twice Over podcast. And I'm so delighted to be welcoming Sheriff Molabokas, who's Associate Chair of Communication and Media Studies at Lincoln Center, and my colleague, to talk to us about innovation, which is our theme for this year. So I'm really happy that we get to talk together today. So welcome to the podcast, Sheriff. Thank you so much. But it's it's wonderful to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast and and everything that that, that you and Steve have, have been doing for, for all instructors. The question that I wanted to ask you about has to do with the reading and talking that we did around what makes faculty development meaningful for institutions. You know, when you were thinking about um, what a teaching and learning center should be at Fordham. Did anything emerge for you as really innovative, really exciting when you think about what helps make faculty development have an impact, be effective? What are you most excited about? I have to say that the pandemic, the pandemic was horrific and terrible in many, many different ways. But I think as we see in so many different industries, it offered the potential you know, it afforded the opportunity for revisioning and for experimentation and for shaking things up. When I think about innovation, I think we have a, a, a finite window at the moment where there is still that flexibility, I suppose. I think we have to seize this opportunity. In terms of what excites me, we all went through this. Adjunct instructors went through this, tenure line uh, faculty went through this, administrators went through this. So we were all there together. And I think that's actually really important because a lot of the time when we think about teaching and learning innovation, it's something that happens in an almost a siloed way, right? You know, it's like, oh, we are facing an increase in students. So let's think about how we might deliver content, how we might deliver teaching differently, or we might be facing something around we're an increase in students or something, you know, it's like, how does res life uh, react to that? Well, the pandemic created a situation where everyone had to react. We all were in that same boat. And so I think that for me, the, the exciting thing about right now and the potential for innovation is that we might not all be coming to this from the same perspective as it were, you know, but but we all have an investment and a recognition that something has happened and that this actually revealed an opportunity for change, which in a very long-winded way is getting me to my first kind of key thing is what excites me is that I think everyone from the top down is interested in, has a motivation for, can see the real reasons, not only why we must innovate, but the opportunities for innovation as well. That, that really excites me. And so I'm thinking not only about what's happening in the classroom, but I also think there's opportunities for us to think about scheduling, for instance. You know, scheduling, oh, I think- a little bit more about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, during the pandemic, 
we couldn't do anything in spring 2020. I think everyone fully agrees that just getting through spring 2020 with, you know, and managing to teach anything was, was a miracle. But as soon as we realized in our department that this is going to be ongoing, that we're, we're likely going to be looking at, at the very least, some kind of hybrid teaching. So we looked at where we could make efficiencies. Uh, we still need to deliver the same courses. We still need to deliver the same number of sections of courses. But we started to encourage faculty to, to think, not force them, but we encourage them to think about, okay, maybe, maybe I can create efficiencies in, in my teaching schedule. So maybe actually I will teach two sections of this one, of this one course rather than one section of three courses just simple things like that that actually when i came into the department i was finding people were teaching three different classes in a semester but there were multiple sections of those classes and they were just teaching one of them and, and i come from a background where actually we try and double up and, and sometimes triple up on on sections because one class prep does you for three sections it, it you know it doesn't reduce the amount of grading you have to do, but it drastically um, reduces the amount of prep that you need to do. So that was one of the first things that we looked at. The second thing, in the Department of Media, Communication and Media Studies, we have long had a flexibility about um, double blocks. So some of our production classes just don't work in 75 minute blocks. They actually need twice the amount. So they'll meet once a week, but for twice the amount of time. You know, the schedule offers those opportunities already. But we liaise with deans in uh, FCRH and FCLC to create more of those. And there's a certain balancing act you have to do there. But that also meant that faculty could deliver content in different ways. And again, it also freed them up a little bit. They were still having the same amount of contact time with, with students, but they could actually get through the same amount of stuff, but get it done in, in kind of like one block, as it, as it were. For me, what really excites me is that Fordham is at a place at the moment where it has the opportunity to revisit how scheduling is organized. And I think that's actually really important because we can do great things in the classroom and outside the classroom and around the classroom. But if we can have a flexibility in when we teach, what modality we teach in, exactly what we're teaching, I think if there's a flexibility around that, around the administrative side of things, then I think that that actually it helps us to bring some of these other ideas about kind of the, the, the core of teaching and learning. It helps to make those more robust and it fits with the 21st century as well. That's the other thing, you know, we, we, I don't know the last time we changed the, the scheduling practices at, at Fordham, but sometimes we do just need to switch those things up because our students need something different. I'm glad you started with scheduling because in, when we use words like innovation, we think of a radical reconceptualization, right? Something really new, I think, rather than it's, it's a, in a model of discovery and transformation rather than a model of interrogation of past practices, right? Okay, this is what we always did. Why did we do it? The conditions around that past practice or the conditions that that past practice was meant to address have changed. And so you mentioned earlier, the, one of the impediments to change or a transformation or innovation is really um, a kind of conservatism, right? The, the, the way we always did it was a good way. Um, these are the reasons why it was a good way. 
to change that way will result in these unforeseen consequences. And then to make a change, there are associated costs getting over the, the cultural hurdles, but then there are other perhaps technological, financial, political impediments that, that prevent that from happening. And so I, I, I like the idea of starting with something like that's somewhat prosaic, right? Scheduling. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if we think about kind of, you know, having a, a you know, a center for teaching and learning excellence, I think we really miss an opportunity if we don't bring in those who are responsible for administering the scheduling. So I'm not talking necessarily about, you know, associate chairs and chairs or program directors who are figuring out which courses they want to run. But actually, if you want the back office, for want of a better uh, term, right, okay, those people who were charged with ensuring that we're using rooms efficiently, ensuring that, you know, everyone has a, has, has a classroom and a class time and, you know, of course, also that Herculean task of ensuring that, you know, students don't have timetable clashes. These are all really important things. But I think that that back, back end is, is just as important to innovation and needs to be a part of that conversation. And it's not sexy. And it's not um, hot. And it's not about using, it's not about bringing in new, new, new technologies um, and, and, you know, I'm a big fan of flipped teaching, you know, and that's, that's been a, a hot, you know, kind of topic since way before the, 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 the pandemic. But, you know, these things aren't necessarily sexy and we don't necessarily think of them as core to teaching. So we think about the people who are drawn to innovation are generally not the kind of people that are interested in, in operations. They're sort of like at the cutting edge of what's new, but that newness, that transformation can't happen unless we interrogate these past practices and all the detail-oriented folk building the structure are really deeply committed to that structure because that's their, where they live. So that is a really interesting cultural disconnect there. Absolutely. I think every university is defined by a tension between the administration and the faculty, right? And, and never the two should meet, you know, and they'll, they'll always disagree. But I think that those most innovative members of faculty, those who really want to see changes in teaching, they miss a step if they don't look at their teaching holistically. They miss a step if they don't think, you know, you need to think outside of the box that, you know, and, and a lot of people are thinking about that on the front end of teaching, about how they deliver content, how they are, are handling assessment, how they're giving feedback, right? But actually, you're only looking at half it. You're not in reaching your full potential if you don't look at the back end as well and you need to bring those people along now that i think there is this long-standing kind of belief that it's like well i'll do this innovation in spite of uh the constraints that the administration are putting on me but have we ever actually sat down with those folk have we actually sat down with associate deans and assistant deans and so on and so forth and and said what would you do if you could rip everything up and do everything differently, how would you think about scheduling? How would you think about that? And what conversation would you want to have with those people in the classroom, right? What is it that you think are the, the, the ways in which we could do things differently? 
because I, you know, it's very easy to kind of write operations offers, you know, they want to keep things as simple as possible and keep it as straightforward and, and do things as they have been doing and therefore think, oh, well, you know, they're going to be quite conservative in their viewpoints. But one of the things that I think came through in the Reimagining Higher Education project, which did bring, you know, faculty and administrators together, was that actually everyone can generate ideas. Everyone has ideas for efficiencies and they might be really small um, ideas, but actually putting them together, having a conversation around that is really useful because you can't engage with that kind of innovation unless every stakeholder who has some role in that comes to the table, you know, and is given a voice and, and, and is also given a charge to innovate as well we we're charging faculty to innovate but when you know where's the the, the kind of call on that operational side where's the invitation in on that um, operational so, side this is so exciting and i just want to kind of bring it down to a concrete level because i think it's hard it may be hard for people listening who haven't sat with that spreadsheet of a schedule to even imagine why what you're describing would matter in a faculty member's life, right? So I'm really curious what you've seen from your colleagues, but I wanna tell you a couple of things that I've seen from mm. my colleagues and my students. It used to be Fordham's class schedule is typically, or has been for years, Monday, Thursday, Tuesday, Friday, with Wednesday, a very lightly scheduled day. That was because the administration, this is what I was told, was absolutely averse to people having a three-day weekend, right? They were <laughs> absolutely did not want people to um, be able to skip out of town on Fridays. But the fact is that my colleagues at other institutions who are working in my area, all of our seminars and symposia are on Fridays. If I want to participate in research with local colleagues who are just a MetroCard swipe away, I can't teach on Friday because there are three or four monthly meetings on Fridays. And that enriches my intellectual life and makes me a better teacher. Similarly, I know when my students are able to arrange their schedules so that they have a day or two days a week that don't have classes, they can take a job and take an internship, which is essential for their professional development. It, it helps the faculty and it helps the students when we have these blocks of time that are not in class, whether that's because that's a day when we can meet as a group, everyone who's teaching this course. You know, we, we never schedule this course on Tuesday mornings because on Tuesday mornings, we have a Zoom to talk about how it's going once a month or that's a day when my students can take an internship, right? So I'm wondering if you have examples like that in your department and, um, where inviting people to be innovative and um, intentional with setting their schedules, doubling up preps has yielded cool results or interesting connections. But I, I want to kind of zoom out for a second and take that three-day weekend issue i think one of the issues that we have at fordham is that we we want to be research intensive but the way we operate is teaching focused that's not necessarily a, a, a huge problem they, 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 there's a tension there but it could be productive but if we treat teaching as something that equates to being chained to your desk 
then I think we have a problem there. Okay, I, I, you know, heaven forbid that someone had a three day weekend. Well, most of the faculty that I know, you know, would use that three day weekend every now and then they might take a three day weekend. But most of the time, they would probably actually use it so that they could actually speed up and get into research, right? You know, there's this belief that research is something that you turn on and off like a tap. And of course, it's not any of us know that actually, you know, you need a bit of a run up into it and a bit, you know, you need to um, come come back down uh, from it as well. So I, I think that there is, there, you know, there is also this kind of real issue between um, between faculty research and operations around around teaching. But you know, put it, putting that aside, increasingly, and this is the, this is something that I've, I've you know we've done at, at, a, at a previous institution that I've worked at is not thinking about section. You know, you've got sections of a class, for instance, and trying very very hard to think about that as an entire class. So yes, you will meet with you know your your uh, you know. Um, back in the UK, it would be your seminar leader or someone and so forth, and and and, and that. But uh, you know, for for discussions, but some of the core content that was being delivered by one person each week, and that rotated round, and that filled up one of the content sections, right? Okay, so you know, you would have seventy five minutes, and that would be everyone together in a lecture lecture theatre, or it would be an asynchronous lecture, or whatever it might be that they were delivering content for that entire class. Right. And then you have a 75 minute um, uh, discussion and it's much more focused. The questions have already been set in the, in the lecture. The students have prepared for it, so on and so forth. Now, at Fordham, we haven't had that flexibility, but the pandemic started to create some of that because there just wasn't the same sort of um, physical structure, you know, that, that, that kind of literally tied us to, um, to, 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 to right. space. One um, of the things that hampers that possibility of a large lecture with multiple sections is just architecture right absolutely Our center campus doesn't have lecture halls so yeah. we could get as excited as we wanted to get about large multi-section lectures but if we're tied to classrooms the architecture of midtown prevents like oh it'd be cool to, to meet once a week at <clears> 200 <throat> and then once a week in sections of 20 we don't have the architecture for that. We don't have the architecture physically, which comes to that next point of, of expanding our understanding around what teaching is, right? A journalist friend of mine, you know, I was talking to her many years ago, well, I say many years ago, but maybe 10 years ago, and she says, the big thing that's changed is we, I no longer, she worked for the BBC, she says, I no longer think about stories, I think about content. I was taught as a journalist initially, she said, um, you know, to write a story and that's going into print. And then you write a story and that's going into TV. You write a story and that's going into um, to radio. She says, you can't think about it like that anymore. Okay, we're multi-platform, okay. Content is content, focus on the content, okay. The delivery is, a, you know, kind of secondary in some respects. And yes, you have to tailor and so on and so forth. But I think we need to take the same approach to teaching, which is, What's the learning outcomes? How am I going to reach those learning outcomes? What's the content of this? The delivery, whether it be on Zoom or so, you know, yes, there are techniques that you need to use on Zoom, you know, to keep attention, to, to, to maintain things, so on and so forth. But we learned to do that in the pandemic. And it's not as though you just walk into a classroom without any kind of skills and, and, and techniques that you have to use, right? Like they, I, 
I fully understand, you know, I'm a realist, I understand that we need, um, you know, butts on seats, you know, or rather actually we need bodies in beds, you know, at each university that has any kind of residential um, element, right? Okay, we have a bill to pay there or multiple bills to pay. I get that. I also think it's really important that students can see one another face-to-face, -face, can meet with their instructor face-to-face, -face, can have that kind of interaction. But I think that actually meeting once a week for a fantastic class, you know, with 20 other, um, 20 other students and an instructor, I think that's just as valuable um, as meeting twice a week in, in that class. But in one, of those, in one of those classes, it's more of a lecture format. So I say, let's focus on delivering the content asynchronously perhaps, or even synchronously, but remotely. Okay? That allows us to cope with the numbers, right? The architecture is definitely an issue, but the architecture is already out of date as soon as it's built in many respects. We build these things and student numbers go up, right? You know, it's, it's like motorways. This is what happens. Sorry, freeways. Um, this is what happens here. Um, but we have this amazing opportunity. You know, we've learned so much about how to do remote teaching. And I think some of the best teaching that I had during the during the pandemic was where I had a, an asynchronous lecture that had loads of interactive elements. You know, pause, pause this now. I need to go to YouTube and find me an example of Laura Mulvey's male gaze in action in a film or pause this i need you to go and um, you know examine this particular site is it a counter public or is it a digital enclave like right? you know then come back and so on and so forth that then allowed me to have a 75 minute class with half of my students because i taught half online and half in person because um you know some students need to be on campus socially distanced so on and so forth that allowed me to have 75 minutes and we got straight into the discussion they didn't even need to be a setup Right. It's like you had I'd already given them the questions at the end of the lecture for them to think about. We came in and they're like, right, OK, I want to talk about this. I found this example. So on and so forth. the richness of that discussion. You know, that beats for me any kind of need to meet twice a week, you know, to, to you know, and I understand middle states accreditation, so on and so forth. But I do think that we have a real opportunity here to to work more closely with our students by refashioning how we deliver some of that content that they need to know in order for us to get to the really important discussions being able to articulate like oh it's the unscripted nature of group work that makes me nervous or i don't like standing up in front of a larger group i mean typically that's the more nerve-wracking thing for people but not everyone is that way but when you have a variety of educational experiences then students can begin to identify like, oh, I learn really well when we get two minutes of silence to collect our thoughts before we open it out for discussion. I remember going to a, a research talk actually, and, you know, it's a standard kind of, you know, uh, research paper being given, it was like, you know, 35, 40 minutes or something like that. And when I walked in, the room had been organized as a kind of, I suppose, you know, a, a classroom, but it was, you know, clusters of tables and chairs, you know, chairs gathered around tables, you know, but in, in different groups and so on and so forth. And I just didn't think anything of it and sat down. And as soon as the, the, the research paper was over, the chair, the person who was chairing it turned around and said, OK, so, you know, um, we sat like this. And that's for a reason. Let's just take four or five minutes, you know, to, to reflect on that paper and 
what did you take away from it and whatever and stuff, you know, before we start the questions. And at first I was like, oh my God, this failed you know very forced and strange and so on and so forth do you know what we had one of the best discussions ever because people were able to rehearse and i guess the thing that i'm saying is that this is not just a student thing right you know faculty need it as well you go to the conference and they take five minutes to ask a question that's actually more of a comment or something that rehearsing right that opportunity to to be a little backstage and and to play with ideas and talk things through actually is really i think very useful and I think that creating spaces where that can happen in the classroom, but perhaps also outside of the classroom um, as well. One thing that I did in the, in the pandemic, you know, we had loads of class spaces available, but I, I wanted students to be able to talk. And so I was putting them in, I actually had the luxury of being able to put them into to different classrooms, you know, to do that work. And I could go around and, 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 and see them. And that was great. But obviously we don't have that quite so much now, but... I mean, it, I team taught a class once. It was really, really, really hard. Talk about back-end negotiations. Yeah. Incredibly difficult to be allowed to team teach a class. And then I got them to reserve two classrooms for us adjacent to each other. And so we had 40 students, two professors, same course, same number, same section, two rooms. And so we could split up and go into different rooms on different days. And it was so exciting to be able to say, okay, today you're going to benefit from his expertise and he's going to give you a lecture. And the other half of you are going to be working on writing pedagogy with Anne. And then we're going to flip that the other day of the week. And so we had this smaller group thing, and then we are going to come all back together for a couple more sections. And that took, so much administrative work but it yeah. was so such an exciting teaching experiment and it comes back to my point about bringing the administrators into the conversation around innovation what would happen if we stopped thinking about a two three and instead started talking about the number of hours someone delivers right in terms of teaching how might that open spaces where we look at a course not as being taught you know twice a week by this one instructor but actually this course requires this number of hours and Anne is going to teach this number of hours on the course and Steve will teach this number of hours and Sharon will teach this number of hours right what might that look like because we would still be delivering the same amount of of, of, of teaching I think but it would also allow us a flexibility to one play to our strengths steve may well be far better at teaching writing than i am and i might well you know be better at talking post-structuralist queer theory than Anne is or something though i probably am not but um, but you see what i mean is that we can play to our strengths okay we can divide that up they also get an experience with three different instructors and i think that's also the other thing that fordham could really benefit from you know i think we have some, some 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 great faculty, but I think we we should students should have an experience of a range of different faculty, and that shouldn't necessarily be per you know one member of faculty per course, but actually mixing that up and through, because you get different people's perspectives, right? You know, I might think Foucault. I happen to think Foucault is you know fantastic, but 
Steve might be, yeah, you know what, actually, here's my critique of this, right? Okay, so, but if they're in taking that class with me, they're not getting Steve's critique of that. They're, they're getting my perspective. So I really like the idea that if there was one magic one, one magic wish that I could have uh, for them, it would be that we stop thinking of, 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 of teaching as, as, you know, in a, in, a, in, in a two, three, and instead think of it as, you know, this is the number of hours that you need to teach. The other really nice thing about that is it allows for far greater flexibility. We don't even need to talk about course releases anymore. We might start talking about service work in relation to hours as well. And so actually you might not get a course release for doing this larger um, piece of, of, of work. And let's face it, you know, we're all administrators at some level, um, you know, especially those on the, on, the, on the tenure track. But actually you might get a slight reduction in your hours for that semester, okay, oh, you know, so-and-so is taking on that particular project. And therefore actually with, you know, that's gonna count as 15 hours of teaching time or something like that, you know, or something like that. That's, you know, I've, I've worked under that model before. The level of flexibility that gave department chairs and individual faculty in order to be able to shape a timetable that one, delivered content to students in a really effective way, but two, also created time for research and also to do service properly. When you introduce students to a variety of professors early on and they have, say, 20% of their course is taught by one instructor and 20% by another, yeah. students can learn the range of theoretical approaches, pedagogical approaches. You can, in a faculty that's not as diverse as it ought to be, introduce students to faculty members of color and have students see how we respect and esteem faculty members who may be otherwise underrepresented on the faculty. The, the argument for that, Anne, becomes even more powerful when we recognize that we now have a new central advising service, which I think has the potential to be great, but where faculty are now moving from an advisory role to a mentoring role. How do you know who you want to contact as a mentor if you haven't met them. If you're, if, if professors are teaching 4,000 level classes, well, how, you know, how is, how is a, a student in, the, in, in their first year ever gonna know about that? This offers them the opportunity. You know, your 1,000 class might be a boot camp, but it's also an introduction to the department, right? And, and I think that this is a real opportunity to then set up mentoring to introduce and showcase faculty and their interests and their styles and their perspectives and their identities so that students know that okay i, I remember having a lecture with them they were great I, I, I might go and speak to them about x or y or z sheriff we always end every episode by asking people to tell us about a teacher who's meant a lot to them so i'm wondering who you'd like to talk about Goodness me, I feel now I feel like I'm on a knife edge because if you ever heard it and I didn't say the person that I think I should say, then you'd be very upset. But no, I I, I will say um, my oh, actually it's my old advisor, um, uh, my PhD advisor Andy Medhurst. He's now uh, retired. He um, I did my PhD in the UK, um, but I and I admired him during during my PhD. But it was actually during my masters where I first got to know him, him properly. Um, uh, and he teaches cultural studies. And 
I lived for my classes with him during my masters. I took a I took a, a class with him, and it was on um, queer in popular culture. And it's kind of a famous class for for anyone who's taken that particular uh, degree pathway, because every week that we were doing, so, you know, he would get us to bring. He would, we would do show and tell. You know, we would, you know, do kind of a, a crazy number of different sort of ideas where people, he, he didn't just want you to read the reading. You had to go out and find objects. You had to bring things in. You had to go and have an experience one week and come back. You had to, you know, when he was teaching the carnivalesque, it was like, right, okay, go and have a carnivalesque experience. You know, don't break the law, don't get yourself in hospital. But, you know, what might, what might that look like? And it was, it was the embodiment of the teaching. Right. It was the it was the it was the the doing of the learning that really inspired me to to pursue teaching, you know, and, and really turned me on to teaching. And he always said, you don't just walk in to teach, you perform. Right. You know, if I ever had him do a guest lecture, he said, you know, um, give me my five minute call. You know, I'll, I'll make sure that I'm ready and whatever. But it was, you know. Teaching is a performance and you have to bring a certain self to it. And that's not, you know, being, you know, the, the, the arrogant, pompous know-it-all or whatever. But you're, you are performing to, the, to these people. And so you've got to have some kind of charisma and, and character um, there and whatever. You should walk out of a lecture theatre feeling a little bit exhausted from having done it, you know. Um, and yes, maybe that's the camp element inside of me. But I would say, you know, um, Andy Medhurst, um, you know, uh, is a very dear friend of mine now, but he was, he was, he will always be, and I think for many people who were taught by the, the professor that they remember. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. The doing of teaching. I love it. And yeah. Steve always talks about the character of Professor D'Agostino, right? So we, we, we've talked about that idea a lot of who we are with our students as yeah. like ourselves, but a better version of ourselves and a focused version of ourselves that's about performing the doing of learning yeah absolutely this was terrific this was terrific thank, thank you, thank so, you much. so much it was uh -oh. a real pleasure thank you very much twice over podcast is available on soundcloud stitcher and spotify with new episodes appearing each week for host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 and email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.